Welcome back to the LCS Podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. On today's program, Sylvia Sotomayor and I talk with Paul Fromer, creator of the Not-Be language for James Cameron's Oscar-nominated film, Avatar. Paul is a professor of clinical management communication at USC's Marshall School of Business. Sylvia and I met with Paul at his office at the Elaine and Kenneth Leventhal School of Accounting building at USC to discuss the Not-Be language, the film, and what it's like to work on the set of a major motion picture. How did you come in contact with James Cameron and kind of how did the whole project get started? Yeah, so we're back in the summer of 2005 and um, I'm a professor in the Center for Management Communication of the USC Marshall School of Business and I get an email that has been forwarded to me by colleague and close friend, uh, a professor named Ed Finnegan, who is a linguist, member of the USC Linguistics Department. In fact, he was my first professor of linguistics when I began my grad work. And the email had been sent to the USC Linguistics Department asking for a linguist who could create an alien language for a motion picture coming out of Lightstorm Entertainment, which is James Cameron's production company. The name Avatar was not associated with it. In fact, for the first year or two, it was called Project 880, so we didn't even know that. But Ed had seen the email and said to himself, this sounds like Paul. So uh, I saw the email and my eyes widened and I said, wow, I think I want this. And so I immediately jumped on it. I contacted Lightstorm, wrote them, told them of my interest. I sent them a copy of um, the book that I had co-authored. Ed and I had done a linguistics workbook with essentially um, data for students in an elementary linguistics class to practice the concepts that they've been talking about. So it's called Looking at Languages. So I sent Jim Caron a copy of the book, and uh, I was very pleased to receive uh, an invitation a week or two later, come down and, uh, and let's talk. So I spent about 90 minutes in Santa Monica at Lightstorm in James Cameron's office, and we had a very stimulating conversation. He told me about his vision for the language, told me about the film, about Pandora, and uh, at the end of it, we stood up, he shook my hand and said, welcome aboard. <laughs> and so I was in Seventh Heaven, it was amazing. So at that point, what happened? This is still in 2005. Yeah. What kind of planning went in? Did you go back home? Did you start creating? What did you do? Well, what he handed me at the time, I think it was during that meeting, was a copy, actually it may have come later, but I got a copy of what's called the script mint. It's, it's halfway between a, a treatment and a script. And that gave me a sense of, of the plot. It also had little snippets of dialogue, and it also had about two or three dozen words that Cameron had come up with himself, mainly character names, a few place names, names of animals. So I had a bit of a sense of the kind of sound he had in mind. So the way I proceeded was to first nail down the phonetics and phonology. I wanted that to be consistent. I wanted it to be interesting, and I wanted it, I wanted to pass it by him for his approval. So what I did is take the little core that I had and expand it, add what I thought was some interesting stuff. Come up with, actually the phonological rules may have come later, but essentially I was talking about segment inventory, consonants, vowels, diphthongs, whatever. Uh, I was looking at phonotactic constraints, and I came up with what I have called sound palettes. So I, I was experimenting with different things. I wanted to get his reaction to things. So, for example, I was wondering if the language should have tone. So I tried uh, some fairly bold <laughs> attempts at tone in one of the palettes. Another thing I tried was distinctive vowel length. You know, I was thinking maybe the language could actually have three degrees of vowel length. 
which might be kind of interesting. And then I added the ejectives, which have become uh, it's kind of famous. What I did was make up just words and put them into sentences with intonation patterns, but that didn't have any meaning with that. And I recorded MP3 files, and I had three of those, and I sent them off to Cameron. And he listened to them, and he was not particularly taken with the ones that had tone. And I didn't, th I think maybe he thought the vowel length ones were a little too exaggerated. But he did like the third one with the adjectives. So that gave me a sense of what the phonology, what the phonetics phonology should be like. In terms of going further, in terms of morphology and syntax and pragmatics and discourse and things like that, that was pretty much on my own. So I'm curious, what kind of tools did you use? It's kind of an interesting question for anybody that creates languages. People find different, you know, computer programs or scraps of paper to work with. How did you, uh, how did you really start to develop it? Yeah. My tools were entirely scraps of paper. Pads and pencils and just trying to come up with, with, with things that I thought would be interesting and challenging, but not that challenging. I think the task is quite different when you're creating something that actors are going to have to get on top of, as opposed to something where you can be totally free and just let your mind wander and create something, you know, that uh, maybe humans would have a lot of problems with, but maybe aliens might not. But, but here the, 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 the constraints were, were pretty severe. Had to be something that actors could master and make sound convincing and memorize and, of course, produce with their own vocal mechanism. One of the, um, one of the clear guidelines that I got from, from Jim was that he didn't want any sort of vocal manipulation whatsoever. So it's had to be simply the actors delivering the lines on set. So um, I've had experience in a fairly wide variety of languages. I'm not, I would never claim fluency in the languages that I've studied, but I, I probably studied 15, 16 languages to various degrees, to various depths, obviously. The ones that I've had most experience with firsthand, I lived in Malaysia for two years. And so um, I actually wound up teaching in Malay math in Malay. So at one point my Malay was not bad. Uh, about 10 years later I lived in Iran and I spent a year, incredible year, in Tehran and really jumped into studying Persian. So my Persian actually at one point was probably my best language. I've also studied, you know, typical uh, Romance, Romantic languages. I've had some fair amount of, of French and and some German, a little bit of Italian and uh, a little bit of Spanish and um, my first language was Hebrew. Of course, I was sent off to Hebrew school when I was a kid. Uh, and then I had Latin in high school. I had four years of Latin. got up to Virgil. On my own, I've tried, looked at Irish. I've looked at... Uh, I, I actually had a year of uh, a Mandarin. So uh, what I did was try to think of all those things and also think of things that, uh, that I hadn't had experience with. I did my dissertation under a linguist whose, whose name is Legend, Bernard Comrie. And that was an amazing experience. And of course, in terms of typology, I don't think there's anyone in the world who is, who is more uh, renowned than he was. And I took a look at, uh, at some of his materials, at some of the things that he had talked about in terms of different kinds of case systems, for example, how ergativity works in language. So um, I kind of put all that together. And I think inevitably what happens in a situation like that is you grab a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this. So in terms of the syntax, for example, there are certain bits of the syntax that I think are reminiscent of Chinese, and there are certain bits that may be reminiscent of Persian, and maybe certain bits that may be reminiscent of Indonesian, that sort of thing. I think the combination is unique. 
to my knowledge. And, and that's, that's true for the phonology as well. Just, I mean, in terms of the segment inventory, I'm not going to come up with sounds that no human language has ever used before. I mean, that, that, that would be, <laughs> I think, extremely unusual. But it's possible, and I don't know for a fact, it's possible that some of the ways I put the sounds together may be, may be novel. Okay, so for example, lots of languages have ejectives, but I don't know if any languages have, say, initial consonant clusters with F plus an ejective. But in, in not that you have words like ftu. So part of it, of course, is, is obviously to come up with novel combinations of things, which I try to do. I wonder, uh, going back to something that you mentioned, at least what I would think is that the actors wouldn't have to master the language. They would have to master speaking it. In, uh, in your experience, did any of the actors actually start to learn anything? <laughs> Maybe to very limited degrees. I mean, what, what I provided the actors with was actually, I think, a fairly detailed analysis of what they had to say. So they had essentially three, well, they had four different things. First of all, they had the English line. And of course, that's where you, you proceed. You're presented with a script, and the script has certain lines which have to be in the language. And that, of course, sort of a, a little diversion here, but that is what drives the building of the lexicon. If the lexicon has a word for angry, if, 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 if a line I have translated has a word for angry, then I'm going to come up with a word for angry. And if it doesn't have a word for happy, then I may come up with a word for happy a little later, just in terms of practicalities of the thing. Okay, so the actor had the English. Then the actors had the Navi in the orthography I had developed, in the spelling system I had developed. Okay. Under each word, I, I glossed each word in small type so that they could tell what a particular word meant. And then, which, uh, which they wanted, and I think which probably helped, I had a very... Englishy kind of phonetic transcription. I mean, I'm putting phonetic transcription in quotes. Mm -hmm. You know, where if a word were had say a syllable say, I would spell it S A Y, and I would capitalize the syllables that receive stress. And you know, the vowel O was transcribed O O. But that helped. Sometimes I think they relied on it a little too much, so that they were missing a few nuances. But of course, there are certain things that I simply could not get around. I mean, for example. Navi has a lax, front, high, unrounded vowel in final position. And so you have a, you have a contrast between a, a word me and a word me. Okay. Now, I don't know how to write me in sort of an Englishy <laughs> phonetic transcription. <laughs> so for that, I really kind of had to resort to the original symbol I came up with with, with an I with a, with, a, with, a, with a grave accent. But mostly, I, I, I think that helped. Getting back to your question... No, they were pretty much looking at stuff I had presented and just trying to master the pronunciation. But of course, it's not just pronouncing words in isolation. It's trying to get the rhythm of the sentence, trying to put the emphasis in the right place. At one point, someone had really read the sentence very nicely and really emphasized the word fte. The word fte means so that. <laughs> you know. So <laughs> that kind of thing is what you run into in a real situation. But eventually, I think everything worked out fairly well. So how did your work with uh, the actors and with the production actually go? Were you, say, working here, and then they'd say, we need this, and you send it back? Were you working with the actors? I actually didn't look up. Where was the bulk yes. of it filmed? Was it filmed here? The movie was filmed in two very distinct parts and in two very distinct places. The CG stuff was filmed here at Playa Vista. In studio. I think they used to be owned by Hughes. I think it may have been the same hangar where they built this or housed the Spruce Goose. 
Okay, and that was turned into a very high-tech soundstage. Uh, the live-action stuff was filmed in New Zealand, and I had nothing to do with that. Didn't I didn't get a trip. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. But um, but for the but but all the language stuff was um, was done here in L.A. Of course, it was it was convenient. Whenever I could, I tried to be on set when the language was being used. Uh, there were sometimes, you know, I, I, I teach, so there were times when I, I just couldn't uh, couldn't make it. But m- most of the time, I was able to adjust my schedule so that I could be there. Uh, what we did on a regular basis was meet with the actors, say, a couple weeks before they need to, to film a particular scene. I would email them the lines with the kind of transcriptions we had just talked about. Uh, I also created MP3 files, which I would think was, was, was pretty much invaluable. And I would mail that to them, too. And, you know, they would download it onto their iPods and maybe listen to it at the gym or whatever. <laughs> so they had that to begin with. And then we met one-on-one. I worked with a wonderful dialect coach. Her name is Carla Meyer, who has a studio uh, in the Valley. And um, we used her studio to meet with the actors. So they would come by sometimes individually, sometimes uh, in in pairs or whatever. And I would go over the lines with them. We would go over them slowly. You know, uh, someone said you have to kind of burlesque it. You know, so we would work on words and then extend words into phrases and then extend phrases into sentences, which is, you know, fairly typical. I also came up with a little, um, a little, what shall I call it? It wasn't a language course, but it was a sort of a course in pronunciation, which I called Speak Navi, and I had actually little exercises, you know, how to do the adjectives. There's a wonderful description on the MIT linguistics site of how to produce an adjective. They say, for example, if you want an adjective K, you try to hold your breath and make a K as loudly as you can, and then you add a vowel, ah, and then you try to reduce the space between the vowel and the adjective as much as possible so that eventually you come up with ah. And so we, you know, that was useful to them too. Interestingly, I was not able to predict what would be easy and what would be hard. I thought, of course, you know, the adjectives and the combinations would be, would be hard. They were hard, but the actors really rose to the challenge with those pretty well. What was more difficult was putting familiar sounds in unfamiliar places. So to have a velar nasal at the beginning of a word, whoa, <laughs> yeah. that was hard. Now, you know, I, I was speaking Malay uh, 40 years ago. <laughs> so for me, it's, it seems very, very natural. But that was hard. That was hard. And, and, and we still, you know, for a long time, we were working with the actors. You know, it's nah. It's not nyah. It's not nah. It's nah. So I don't want you to call anybody out. Sure. But... Uh, were there particular actors whose performance you thought uh, were superior? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I, they all did extremely well. Let's talk a little bit about the language itself. Sure. So um, there's going to be a way of going about this. There are a number of questions, just a number of questions, many of which okay. aren't going to be able to fit uh, in the interview, but maybe I sure. can ask you about them later. But uh, So for the language itself, for the most part, what I've noticed is it's almost like if you imagine Turkish, where you have the, you know, the stem, mm-hmm. it's similar, except that you also have some of those elements within the, Infix, yeah. within the verb, yeah. specifically for verbs. Are there infixes anywhere else other than the verb? No. Okay. No. No. Sure. There's also some other things that I, I encountered before, such as um, the uh, deplaceability, is that the word I want, of the, uh, of the ad positions? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There you the, go. Uh, sure. One of the things that I, I think could be called a, a, a hallmark of the language is the flexibility of word order. And I, I, I was interested in coming up with something which would be maximally flexible. I don't know if I, if I did it. But because of the case system, I mean, you can have all six permutations of SOV, and they all mean the same thing. You know, you know as, as someone pointed out uh, very astutely, that doesn't mean that in terms of discourse, every one of these is equal to, to, to every other one. But uh, just in terms of, of you know, the, the semantic content, yeah, you can, you can permute it with no problem. Genitives can either precede or follow their heads. Relative clauses can precede or follow their heads. And ad positions can precede or follow their heads. One little quirk there is that there is this phonological process of lenition, and certain ad positions, when they're pre-nominal, will trigger lenition. So that uh, the word sounds a little bit different depending upon whether the ad position is in front or in the back. Did anybody else actually use the language in the movie? And by that, I mean, were you the only one that, were d that was doing translation? I, I was the only one doing translation. Okay. And so I would get phone calls, well, we need, we need to know how to say such and such. So one thing I learned is that you've got to be there, and you've got to be Johnny on the spot, and sometimes uh, when they need something, they really need something. And you don't always get a lot of notification, a lot of lead time. Sometimes it's, uh, here we are, and uh, we've decided that we're going to add this line. Being on the set, I mean, there were days when I was on the set for 12 and 13 hours. And I'm not telling you that I'm working that entire time. It's, I think it's very typical, you know, the long stretches. Someone used this referring to, some, to something else, I think maybe, maybe war. <laughs> but, but there are long stretches of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer panic. And so that's, that's pretty much what I experienced on set. There are times when you're just sitting for hours and not doing anything because they're involved in other things. But then all of a sudden... The focus is on you, and someone will come up to me and say, hey, we are adding a line here. I mean, never having had any contact with the film industry prior to this, I really had a lot of misconceptions. And one of the misconceptions I had was that if you're doing something as ambitious as Avatar, then absolutely everything is going to be totally nailed down before you get to the set. You know, and then it's just a question of implementing. Well... I learned that there's a lot of creativity that goes on at this point in the moment. And people will delete lines and people will add lines and say, you know, we really should be doing that. And when it's in English is one thing, but then people will come up to me and say, hey, how do you say that? <laughs> well, you know, uh, sometimes I was able to answer fairly quickly. And sometimes I had to say, hey, give me a couple of minutes, okay? <laughs> Can I have five minutes on this? Uh, I, I, I told this story before, but for the most memorable such example was, actually, I don't think this made it into the final cut of the film, but Jim and Sam Worthington were, were talking, and they decided that Sam should be telling a story about almost being seriously attacked by a totem, by, by one of these, this flying Leonopteryx thing. And they wanted to say that he almost bit me on my big blue ass. So Sam was going to say this in Navi, and so they came up to me and said, Paul, how do you say big blue ass? <laughs> so I had big and I had blue, but I did not have, I did not have posterior. So I, uh, I played around with it, and I asked, you know, I said, give me a few minutes, and we came up with some lexical items, and I, I, I tried them out on people sitting around, and they said, nah, but then 
So it's tim. So my big blue S is way in tim So are you still pretty good with it, incidentally? Can good you? with it? Uh, I'm getting better. I mean, I'd have to tell you, you know, you, you become proficient in a language when you speak it. So I don't have anybody to speak it with yet. Although, there are lots and lots of people who want to. There are lots of people who are trying, and really with remarkable results. So that's, uh, that's really a whole unexpected development, at least unexpected by me. What further uh, kind of specifications did James Cameron give for the language? So we know that he had a set of words, and that it had to be pronounceable by actors. Did he have any other ideas other than that that he gave you? The, the only thing that I got in terms of direction was that it had to sound musical. It had to sound nice. Of course, you know, why does, does language sound nice? Well, that's very much in the ear of the beholder. But um, I tried to make it appealing to a fairly wide audience. It, uh, and so because of that, I deliberately ex excluded certain, certain kinds of sounds. I mean, it does not have a lot of uvular sounds, for example, as Klingon does, for example. Uh, it, it, I, I think it sounds fairly, fairly flowing and fairly, fairly pleasant. Some people have told me that. But, of course, it's a very subjective thing. Aside from that, though, no, I, I really didn't have any direction. It seems like there's information up, at least on the language log post, about the phonotactics of consonant clusters at the beginning of a word and at the end of the word. But there's, there doesn't seem to be any information about word internal santi and also uh, santi across words. So, for example, there, uh, what they came up with specifically is that there are certain consonant clusters that are disallowed even in final position, yeah, such as like a, a glottal stop plus a consonant. Well, well there, there, there are no consonant clusters in final position. What? Oh, right, right. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, actually, I think it would be pretty obvious why a glottal stop plus a consonant would be disallowed. Uh, yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yes. <laughs> right. uh. But for example, you have right in the name of the language. Uh, Navi. So it's initial stress. Yes. Okay. Navi. Mm -hmm. That's okay. You, you have a glottal stop followed by a consonant. Mm -hmm. So what they were asking were, uh, were there any uh, phonotactic restrictions on consonant clusters in word and term yeah. position? No. And so any two syllables could come together, and whatever cluster is, com is created internally by a budding syllable, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what, what the term is. You, you have it says sort of a budding cluster is because the first element belongs to the the initial syllable and the second element belongs to the following syllable. There are, on, on, there are a few places where I had assimilation take, taking place. So I um, probably can't think of any good examples right now. But um, there was nasal assimilation, for example, which is, you know, extremely expected. So uh, an underlying N before a P could become an M. In fact, I changed the spelling in a few places. Uh, if you want to, I, I, I can find I find some examples, but that's about the only thing. Right. As, aside from that, I pretty much let the phonotactic constraints apply to syllables, and then any two syllables can come together. So, out of curiosity, can a word can a syllable end in v? Forget. No. No. But it can end, can it end in f? No. No. All right. Okay. Well, we'll fix that. Yeah. No. It it ends. 
Of the 20 consonants, I think there are 12 allowable finals, and, and they, they all belong to fairly natural consonants. So it can nasals, end in, liquids. it can end in liquids, it can end in nasals, it can end in stops, both regular stops and ejectors. It can't end in fricatives or affricates. Okay. And I, I think that's pretty. In terms of in terms of glides, if it ends in a glide, then it's really a diphthong. Then you could have a situation where you have, say, up e which is a syllable ending in an ejected P, and then another syllable starting with F, P, ejected. Wow, that is a very good question. I guess you could, yeah. You know, you're, you're making me think now, and that's very good. I don't have any examples in the lexicon of right. internal syllables beginning with, say, something like F plus ejected. So... I should probably articulate that rule. Very good. Very good. All right. Yeah. Happy to help. <laughs> That's what? Yeah. Happy to help. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah. All right. Oh, this is, a, this is a question that comes from Eddie Mays. This is, I think, an interesting one. To what extent will canonical errors, that is, uh, typos that have occurred in the Activist Survival Guide uh, and or bad pronunciations by the actors, be incorporated into the language, either as dialects or perhaps as idioms, versus being dismissed as performance error. Well, uh, I certainly have been thinking about that. And uh, there are certain situations where I think we'll just have to say that it's a dialectal, dialectal variant. I'm mostly thinking about what is in the movie. And we'll have to say that this is a dialectal variant, or we'll have to say that this is a performance error. Now, one way of getting around some of these things is that of the seven main speakers of the language, only four are native Pandorans. Three are humans who have learned the language as a second language. So if they make mistakes, right. kind of expected, in fact, is rather natural. So we can so when Norm or Grace or Jake uh, may do something which is non-canonical, to uh, to put it nicely. We can, dis we can say, well, they really meant something else. Now, when the others do something, then it will probably be a, a dialectal variant. I read somewhere that at least somebody somewhere has said that you've given your blessing to the Wikipedia page. Uh, Tristan Roberts, who is going as sorry, he asks, is the Wikipedia page still accurate? The honest answer is I haven't looked at the Wikipedia page in a long time. And I, I know the guy who is the driving force behind it. I have to tread a very fine line here, and there's a very careful balance. I mean, I would love to get everything out there, believe me, because there is such a clamor for information about the language. I don't own the rights to the language, and so I, whatever I do really should be with the blessings of Fox. Now, that being said... When people interview me and ask me things about the language, I, you know, I, it, it, it does not make a lot of sense for me to just clam up and say, I'm sorry, I can't talk about it. Then why are you interviewing me? You know. So I have given out some information. I posted to Language Log, for example, which was mostly about, about phonetics and phonology. I had a few really, no more than a little teasers about the morphology and syntax. So, so it's, it's, it's been a... It's been a, a a bit of a 
I'm, I'm in kind of a quandary, as you can tell, about, about how much I can actually put out there. My impression is that a lot of what's in Wikipedia is pretty good. But I can't give a blanket blessing to the whole thing because, and the main reason is that I really haven't taken a look at it. I know it's evolved. It's evolved quite a bit. The person behind it is, is very good. And eventually I hope I'll be able to, uh, to put reliable, accurate information out there so that people really can, uh, can get a, a good sense of how it works. Let's continue on with the response. Of course, uh, it was uh, it was pretty huge. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what you were expecting. Were you expecting a large response? Were you expecting a small response? Yeah, I had no idea what to expect. I mean, you know, it's my first time. So I uh, I have been astonished by the, by the response. I've probably gotten approximately five hundred emails from people who have looked up my my email address and are writing from every corner of the globe. It's um, people really seem seem to like the language, but more than anything, they want to learn it and they want accurate information. So, uh, and and then of course the people who have taken what's out there and run with it and, can, and have constructed the Learn Navi site and so on, which is really quite amazing. Last time I checked, I have not gotten into the content of the forums, but just looking at the number of posts, I think we're up almost to thirty thousand posts. Which is really quite remarkable. Now, actually, for the beginners subforum, bearing in mind that's one of about I don't know twenty-five some for yeah. subfora. The I checked last night and it was up to six thousand twenty-three posts. Amazing. Just yeah. that one. Just forum. that one forum. Yeah. Right, and in fact, um, and I think that there was a significant revision last night. Really? Yes, because I went to learnnavi.org at one point in time yesterday, and it said. Um, it was kind of just like a, a, a page that said, this site has been reserved for one of our users. You know, one of those blanket sites that uh, mm. you get from like a hosting company. I went on later that night and it had a whole bunch of new information that wow. I hadn't seen, including, um, in fact, I don't know if you've heard of this yet. There is a petition. Yeah. You've heard of this yeah. petition. I have. It's up to 1,167 signatures. And I thought, well, what on earth could this petition be about? And I say, oh. All they're asking is, <laughs> it's a petition to you to ask them to teach them the language. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Now, uh, it's interesting to me because uh, obviously there's more to it than that. If it were simply your desire to teach them the language, you probably would, I assume, right? Or you would try to put material out there. But, well, but, but, but I can't do it by myself. And, oh, well, that's interesting. No. I mean, if they, you know, I, I have to be sure that I'm not violating my my contractual agreement. Yeah, and that's the big issue. And that's the big issue. Right. And I, you know, I don't own the rights to the language. When you do something like this, you're a, when you're a consultant, you essentially provide a product, and you provide the product. You're compensated for your work, and then you no longer own the product. And so the question is, how much can I put out there? So that's why I've been talking to the movie people seeing what we can do with their blessing, with their cooperation, to put something out there so that people could learn the language. Have they been getting back to you? Not yet. But uh, I hope to hear from them soon. When can we expect to see a dictionary? When can we expect to see a grammar, a month, a year, what types of books, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Basically, everybody wants official information 
perhaps in book form or in some sort of form, yeah. and they want to know when. It seems odd because it almost seems like you can't answer this question. You have to put it off to somebody else's, right? That's correct. That's correct. I mean, I would love to answer the question. I would love to give people, you know, uh, hope that at this point, that's this is what's going to happen. But I don't know. And so that's what I have to find out, and that's what I'm trying to find out. Now, actually, let me turn it around. You, how do you do? You have been in the Conline community much longer than I have. What do you think would be the most efficient and effective way to get information out to people? Well, since um, the Conlangan community has really been a community, a qua community, since the Internet. Before that, there were just thousands of people all over the world who had no idea other people created languages. Right. <laughs> and since I think the community has gone online, the number one way to share information has been through one of the communities or, and then going beyond that, a website. We don't have any publications, I'm afraid. We're just, mm -hmm. We kind of try to get by with what we can. I think well, what I bet people would love for Navi is something like just a blog that you could update. But mm -hmm. this actually gets to another interesting legal question. You've already stated, stated that essentially you're working as a consultant. And uh, the status of a consultant is pretty clear. The question is, is that an appropriate role for a language creator for something like this? How do you feel about the fact that the language is owned by Fox. Klingon is owned by Paramount. This is certainly something unfamiliar to the rest of the language creators. We, we own our own creations. Right. So what do you think? I think that the analogy is with uh, someone who's written a screenplay. That, uh, it, at least that's the way the film industry thinks of it. That when you, when you write a property and you, and you turn it into to producers to make it into a film, Pleases and this is my understanding. I don't think you own it any, any longer. And people will change things because they own it. And I mean, this has sometimes resulted in, in writers disowning the film, which is purportedly a film of their screenplay, because it's changed so radically that it's no longer theirs, no longer represents what they have. So, I mean, this is sort of, at least my understanding is that this is a paradigm, this is how it works. Now, is it appropriate? It's a good question. It's a very good question. I, I don't know. I don't know. And maybe it's, maybe it's something that has to be rethought. So, for example, just for, just for using Navi, uh, some of the questions that you know, we're not going to have time for mm -hmm. uh, during the interview are just a number of simple questions. How do you say X, Y, and Z? Uh -huh. Yeah. Many of those uh, you probably don't have words for yet. Sure. If you were to coin them, what would the status of those words so, they don't exist yet. Presumably, they will become the property of Paramount. Do you have these? Oh, I'm sorry, Fox. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have the ability to coin these words? And then, what happens later if Fox hires somebody to create different words? Hmm. <laughs> good questions. Very good questions. Well, I mean, I have been doing precisely that. I mean, you know, for various uh, purposes, people have asked me, how do you say such and such? And either I can tell them immediately, or I say, you know, I'll get back to you, and I, I, will, I will coin words. Now, my understanding has been that this is simply adding to the corpus, and therefore it is owned by Fox. What happens down the road if someone else changes the language or works on it? I really don't know. So, I mean, 
as you can tell, I'm new to this game too. And so I'm finding out things and I'm learning things. And you're right, there are certain issues that have to be clarified. This, is, this comes from Stephen Lytle, I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, who is also in the Klingon community. Uh-huh. He has a question, is there going to be a single person or group of individuals, in addition to yourself, who can create canon for Navi? And he mentions, I would like to see or be someone who can create or translate text intended to be canon. Uh, and I know exactly why he's saying this, because he says a lack of canon text has been a serious impediment to Klingon, which is specifically in the Klingon community, you know, they have the whole Klingon Language Institute. They treat what Mark Okren creates as canon. And they like to use the language a lot, for lots of things. But he's simply not creating words for them on demand. <laughs> Every so often, you know, he'll come out with a, some new words and, you know, they'll use them. But the demand exceeds the supply. Right. So. Right. I, um, perhaps you could tell me this. Are there people designated as official lexicon expanders for Klingon? No. They're not? Uh, well, there's Mark Oprin. Okay, yeah, sure. And then there's whoever Paramount designates, I suppose, if they don't use Mark Oprin for a movie or a production or whatever. Okay. Does Mark pass on on the new creations? Uh, I don't I think mean, so, no. I mean, I mean, I, mean just, I, 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 I haven't taken a look at, at the translation of Hamlet. Okay. But obviously he has not come up with all of that lexicon, or has he? Uh, I believe they use only the lexical items that he's created. Aha! So I didn't realize it. Okay. Now, then there's an interesting question of, does it count as creation of a lexical item if you coin a compound? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Because in that case, no, they couldn't translate Gilgamesh, they couldn't translate Hamlet, they couldn't translate the Old Testament without coming up with some new compounds. That's right. Or transcriptions of names. Uh, you're asking some very good questions, and I, as you can tell, I don't have the answers to the, to the legalities of the situation. Yeah, and I think part of the problem is that nobody does. And uh, really, when it comes to how the language, how language creators are interacting with the entertainment industry, they're trying to push us into one category or another, so that these, you know, rather interesting legal questions can be put aside for the time being. Uh, the question is if. What has been suggested, I think, in several of the things I've read, if Navi is setting a precedent and that this is going to become more common in the future, at some point in time, questions will have to be dealt with. Yeah, you're right. These things should be determined and there should be some guidelines as as to how this works, as opposed to simply you create a product and then you own the product. Because as you say, it's it's an ongoing creation. I'm not sure that people in the industry really understand the nuances of this thing. So that's something, I, you know, part of it is, uh, is education, part of it is realizing the practicalities of the situation and the fact that the language will grow and expand and maybe not necessarily um, through a single, a single person. Some kind of, it. yeah, these are very interesting questions. I wonder, have you read all of... Uh well, certainly not all of There's just been too much. But have you at least uh, read a good portion of what's come out about Nami online? Just, you know, various things in newspapers, online journals, and so on. Well, uh, a lot of it is stuff that, you know, I was um, interviewed about. And so, yeah, I've, 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 I've read those. And well, um, then there are various combinations and, and, and permutations of these things. So I, I certainly haven't read them all. Paul Bennett came up with this question. He asks, how do you react to critics of language creation in general 
for example, as described in, as described in a recent post to the Conlang list, and um, I'll tell you about that. Mm -hmm. uh, specifically, the argument runs as follows, and I think several of us have been right. Why learn or create a fictional languages language when there are natural languages in the world that are dying? And in particular, uh, most I think most of the reaction to Navi specifically has been very positive. The one negative that I've seen was by John Sutherland from the Times Online in UK. Uh, writes, in the three years that it took Cameron to get Avatar to the screen, a language died. Navi, alas, will, uh, won't fill the hole where it used to be. Both as a linguist and now as a language creator, mm -hmm. what do you think of this argument? First of all, just to mention that column, that column is so full of inaccuracies that it's almost a joke. So uh, I don't know Professor Sutherland, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I understand that he is an excellent scholar in the area of Victorian literature. I think perhaps he should confine his remarks to his area of expertise. Okay. That being said, obviously there are concerns among any dedicated ethical linguist about the fact that languages are dying. And there's no question. We sh and, and you know, I've said it several times myself. When a language dies, you lose a way of looking at the world. And it is very important to preserve them, to preserve dying languages to the extent we can. I'm not sure what additional resources can do to preserve dying languages. This is obviously not my area, my area of expertise. It's not just a question of throwing money at something. It's a question of creating a social structure where the language will be perpetuated, where young people will want to learn it, and, and things like that. But I also think that there's room for a lot of people to do a lot of different things. One thing that I've been delighted to discover with Navi is that a lot of young people seem to be turned on not only to this language, but to the idea of language in general. I've gotten emails from, from high school kids who have said, I always hated Spanish in my classes and I always hated French, but I really want to learn this language. You know? And um, and there are there are young people out there who are wrestling with the idea of transitive versus intransitive verbs and how do you do an ejective, who may be turned on to linguistics in general. And maybe who knows? Maybe they will take a linguistics course, or maybe they will eventually discover that it's the passion of their life and they'll and they learn. So so I think there are a lot of different ways to approach language conservation, and maybe just interesting people in the idea of language in general is going to help. So basically I think that, that there's room for a lot of different things that can be done in language. A lot of people can maybe serve the cause in different ways. If you want, you can see my reply to his, uh, his post. Okay. <laughs> oh, I, I, I actually, I may have seen it and I thank you for it because that was, I, I, was, I was wondering if I should respond with myself and I said, nah, perfect. I mean, yeah, the idea of it's just like English. Oh, really? <laughs> just a couple quick questions. Here's an interesting one. Do you have any more any more movie anecdotes that you've had during the production that just came up? Anything that just strikes you? Nothing, nothing specific. Uh, however, there there were times. You know, you, you were asking about about things like performance errors. Um, there were times when an actor would come out with a pronunciation which I hadn't intended. And 
by the way, the, the, the way this worked with, with my being on set was that they would do maybe seven or eight takes of a particular scene. And I would be there, listening with headphones and trying to concentrate on exactly what came out and making notes and everything like that. And you have to remember, the actors had a very difficult time with this. Think what they had to do. They had to memorize the stuff in a language no one's ever heard and memorize it because there were no cue cards. You can't be looking at cue cards when you're acting a scene. And they have to get the correct emotional underlying response, and they have to do the movement correctly, and they have to be looking in the right place. You know, all of these things. So the, they didn't always nail the language every single time. And I would go up to them between takes, say, and say, oh, you know, there's really good, but you know, just make sure that it's nah rather than nah. Sometimes they were receptive to this, and sometimes they saw me coming and then ran the other way. <laughs> but and, and, and you have to you have to be judicious as to, as to how you handle it. Every so often, though, something came up or came out, uh, which I didn't intend. But if it's the only time the lexical item was used, and if it fit the phonology, fit all the phonotactic constraints and everything like that, I said, you know what, that's the word. <laughs> and so and so every so often, it kind of influenced. Uh, the lexicon. There were also times when I uh, I listened to the dialogue from the final cut of the film. This is maybe two months before it opened, and I spent a weekend at Lightstorm with a set of tapes and looking at at a very rough cut of the movie with no music, obviously not 3D, and and, and just looking at it on, on a tiny little computer screen and listening to the dialogue. And all of a sudden, I would hear something, and I say, "Oh, that's interesting. What is that?" You know, because I could not be at every single session. And there were times when something came out and I said, ah, okay. And if it, if it fit the language, then I would say, okay, well, let's see, what could that possibly mean? And how would it fit in? And then that became part of the language. Mm -hmm. Didn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. But, you know, th these were kind of interesting things that I wasn't necessarily anticipating. So, in essence, you didn't coin all the words. <laughs> Uh, in the in the complete glossary with all the columns which did not appear in the survival guide, um, I have a column that says source, and the vast majority of them say PF. But every so often there's a JC, okay, for the words that that Jim came up with. For example, Navi is his word. Irayo, meaning thank you, is his word. Uh, a number of other words. Um, Todo for the animal, you know, and, and his words. So I duly acknowledge it, that it comes from his source. Every so often, there's, um, there's a ZS for Zoe Saldana, you know, when she came up with something spontaneously, which I realized could fit. You know, yeah, not a lot of those. But I, I was very careful to acknowledge the source of the, of the words. This is a question from Paul. I think we have the answer to this question, and it's going to lead to another. Uh, so have you been conlanging uh, recreationally throughout your life, or is this a one-time thing? The only time I ever did it before was for the book, was for looking at languages. In fact, I was just looking at it a little while ago. In the chapter on historical and comparative linguistics, I came up with an artificial example for students to reconstruct the proto-language. And um, I called the language, well, I called the language family the speak-to-me family. And I gave them, this is all totally artificial made-up data. Okay. And uh, the idea is to look at the, at the uh, daughters 
and look at the cognate sets and to reconstruct the proto-language. It's a very, very typical thing you do, obviously, in, uh, in historical and comparative. So this is really my only, my only attempt at uh, language construction. Obviously, it's not, it's not a language. It's just, it's just words, just lexical items. So beyond that, though, no, I, I've, I've, I never did it before. So this was a, this was a totally new experience. Wow, so the voiceless stops, totally yeah. unaffected. Yeah, you, 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 you can probably figure this out pretty well. But, but there, there are some cute little phonological rules that take place and, and assimilations and things like that. Yeah. Peter Bleakley asks, i got to try to pronounce this, he's the creator of Hanga uh, Thiagon. You can tell me if I did that right, Pete, um, and Ileana. <laughs> Uh, so, when you're interviewed about Navi, the comparison most interviewers make is to Klingon. Uh, however, there are lots of other conlangs out there, and if I were asked for a good example of an alien language, I'd choose Sylvia's Kalen. That's Sylvia. Ah. What, He's my number one fan, I think. Oh, great. I'd love to see it. Yeah. Uh, what awareness do you have of the world of amateur conlanging, and are there any amateur conlangs you particularly like? Uh, by the way, I would add to excellent alien languages, now specifically for aliens, uh, Dennis Moskowitz's Rick Chick, oh, yeah. Don Boozer's Dree Talk, and even though it's it's just a little bit of a thing, Jeffrey Henning's fifth, which I tried, I once tried to coin a sentence in for a presentation I gave at, uh, at you know, Masha Polinsky, Maria Polinsky. I don't think so. Oh, she was down at UCSD. I gave a presentation at her uh, typology undergraduate class. And I oh, really? Yeah, and I tried to create, I tried to write mm -hmm. a sentence in Jeffrey Henning's fifth, and I did it wrong. Wow. Uses some sort of, it's it's a type of grammar that. Humans can't learn and use in real time. But anyway, so uh -huh. okay, but 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 why? So in other words, it violates the principles of universal grammar. Oh, I'm sure it violates dozens. Okay. It uses yeah. uh, it uses la uh, it uses last and first out grammar. Is that a oh wow? Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it's like computer. It, it's a, it's computer language. Yeah. It's sort of more of a computer language than a human language as yeah. far as yeah. See, see, goes. One of the constraints for Navi, and it was a major constraint, is that humans have in fact learned this language. They can learn it as a second language. So therefore, it has to be a very human-like language. So that language sounds fascinating, but that probably would not have worked in this context. Right. Yeah. No. So, um, uh, but yeah, the question was, was uh, were you aware of yeah. the amateur conlang community? Uh, so at what yeah. point? I was aware of the community. I was not aware of the languages, and I had not looked at them. And when I got the job, I, uh, I, I decided that I, would, that I would not look at them because I didn't want to be unconsciously influenced. Um, I had taken a look at Klingon uh, years before. In fact, there's, a, there's an exercise on Klingon in this book. Very, very simple, and I had looked at it very superficially. I think it may have been in, I don't know, in the early 90s. But I deliberately did not look at any of the other con lines, which I, I know, you know there, are, there are quite a few out there, because I, I, I wanted it not to be influenced either consciously or unconsciously by, by other things. Yeah, and of course, uh, Klingon has never really been a big part of, uh, of the con line community as such. It's kind of, uh, Is that true? Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's... I don't know. Because the conlang community, I think, is more people who have their own languages and want to discuss them and share details and, and figure, yeah. out, figure them out and learn how to do it and things, and less of people who want to actually learn one of these languages. I see. Though there are those people, too, so... Yeah. Right. So, so, so um, I assume that most... 
amateur con language, amateur in the sense that they're not getting paid for what they do. Do it just for the love of, of language. Uh, do the languages ever go anywhere, so to speak? I mean, in in the sense of are they ever used in any other way? Are they are they do are there communities that grow up? People generally start with, I guess, making up you know the grammar and some of the words, and then we do translate things, and we sometimes share our translations. Uh -huh. And we do have one game where somebody will start off with the text in their language, pass it to the next person with enough information to translate it. Oh, interesting. And that person then translates it into their language, and so on down the line. And originally, and then eventually the person who originated the text gets it back, and it's, of course, completely different. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, sure. and, and people do create poetry and, and texts and, and all sorts and stories and such in their languages. There are people who do that. There are people who create languages because it's part of a, a novel or, or some sort of fiction that they want to write someday, whether they get to that part or not. And, and there are some who just do it in order to have a, a private language to, to write their own stuff down wow. in. Okay. And, and there are some who do it because they would like other people to learn it. Uh, it doesn't always happen, but, yeah. <laughs> but they would like that. And, and so, um, so, yeah, people have so many different reasons for doing this, yeah. I guess. So your language is Kaelin? Kaelin, yeah. How good are you at it? Can you are you are you pretty fluent? Is it no? No. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, well, as a matter of fact, this is difficult though. That's I, it is. As a matter of fact, there there are only a handful of people I think who can pronounce it correctly because phonology has never been my strong point. So I didn't really care. <laughs> I, I, I just see. tend uh, to call it Kalenian. That's uh, the American version of the of the name. Well, and well, phonology isn't the hard part. The phonology is not it's, all it's that difficult, pretty, pretty but the syntax really. and and some of the morphology is is weird because I tried to make it verbless, but without actually making it unnatural at the same time. So don't ask me how I manage that. It's nice <laughs> um, a delicate balance. It, it, it's, wow. it's, I, I basically have four words that could, you could analyze them as verbs, but they are a closed class. So, hmm. you know, those are the only four there are. And, that means that everything else that we would put in a verb either comes as a modifier to the whole sentence or gets turned into a noun. So to say he jumped onto the table, how do you, how do you handle it? You would have to probably say he moved onto the table and then in the manner of jumping or something like that. Uh-huh. Okay. And so, so move is one of those, those, those closed class... Move is actually... Yeah. Move is a combination of one of it's the closed class... Relationals is what I call them, and another particle that that is a, a path particle. So, so I'm I'm curious if you compared, say, the English translation of a sentence in Kalen, would they be pretty much the same length, or does or did, or did Kalen tend to expand more over English or contract? Did you it would depend. Often it, it, it expands, but sometimes I can actually say things yeah. more succinctly. See, th th that, that's, that's something that I ran into with the movie because I think it's accurate to say English tends to be a rather concise, compact language. I mean, we have so many one-syllable words, and you say things very concisely. I don't have to tell you, you look at um, a brochure which is translated into, into ten languages, and at least for the languages that use the Roman alphabet, English is almost always the smallest. You know, French Spanish is like three or four lines long. Okay. So... Well, this happens in Navi as well. And that wasn't good. <laughs> because 
especially in the scene in the movie, you, 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 you've both seen the film, you know, the scene in the movie at the end where, uh, where Jake is here giving his big rallying speech and Tsute is standing there translating it consecutively. Well, you know, Jake would say this and then Tsute had to say this in my original translation and Jim said, no, 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 we can't have that. So I had to find a way of shortening it and in fact, if you look at, at the actual Navi that, that Tsute is coming up with, it's not totally parallel to the English. It tends to be much more condensed and, and, and concise only because of the, of the time constraint. You know, it, 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 it would kill the movie if, 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 if Jake's thing didn't get the focus and the Navi translation you know, took up twice as much space. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, it might be realistic as well. If somebody, you know, if that were the actual situation, you know, you wouldn't want to spend too much time you know, going into the nuances. Though. Exactly. Exactly. Say this exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get it out, get it fast, yeah. Sure. Okay, so uh, Paul also asked, and I think this is a general question, mm -hmm. uh, would you be interested in joining something like the Conline mailing list? Sure, absolutely. You can better get used to 50 more emails a day. <laughs> okay. okay, well, I, I, I have, I, I, I got to tell you, it, it, answering the emails has been a problem. My goal is to, is to answer them all, but my inbox is kind of daunting right now. And, of course, you know, I'm back, back to teaching, so it's, it's been hard. But, but eventually, I'm going to try to get something out to everybody who's written in. What I haven't done yet is check my Facebook page. Apparently, I mean, somebody constructed a Facebook page for me, I think, about 10 years ago. Mm. When it first began, I, I never use it. I never check it, and people are, I think, posting to it. And I really should take a look at that, but I haven't checked. <laughs> I'm, I'm just not a Facebook kind of guy. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much for talking with us today. It was a pleasure, and we look forward to hearing more from you. Uh, it was a pleasure for me too. Thank you. Since we conducted our interview in mid-January, the Nabi community has expanded. For example, the LearnNavi.org online forum now has over 150,000 posts, and the petition to Dr. Fromer has garnered more than 4,000 signatures. In addition, Dr. Fromer has a closer relationship with the Nabi online community. He's currently working on a project called the Lexical Expansion Program, which aims to expand the Nabi vocabulary to include terms and concepts requested by the fan community. Our intro and outro music is by Gary J. Shannon of BusyWig.com. Our audio editing and post-production is by Maximilian Crickle. This podcast would not be possible without you. So please, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions for people to interview, music we could use, or an interesting story to share, email or IM us at lcs at conlang.org or visit our website, podcast.conlang.org. I hope you've enjoyed today's edition of the Language Creation Society podcast. See you next time. Fiat Lingua.